Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled and honored to have Carly Hauk on today. She is an author, a learning architect, leadership development professional, Stanford University instructor, and much sought after speaker who teaches people, leaders, and teams to lead consciously from the inside and revision a workplace and a world that prioritizes people and planet first. As a leadership expert, she partners with some of the top organizations in the world, helping enhance cultures of high performance, collaboration, trust, and belonging. Carly, welcome to the show. It's so delightful to have you. Oh, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for the invitation and your enthusiasm around this topic. It's really important to me. It's important to me too. In the very beginning of my organizational development career, I saw that one of the largest opportunities was to work with organizations to bring about more consciousness, more awareness. And your new book, Shine, Ignite Your Inner Game to Lead Consciously at Work and in the World, is uh, just out. And I'm thrilled to have you on to talk about the book and about your work. So welcome. Thank you. I think it'd be nice to start out to hear a little bit. You started very young in this work with yoga and meditation. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to the kind of work you do today in organizations and with people. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, like many of us, I grew up in a childhood where things were not always easy and peaceful. And I was looking for ways to stay grounded and to stay clear. And yoga was something that I found very early on. I, I don't even really know what the catalyst was for that. As far as, you know, someone giving me a book or whatnot, I think I just found it on my own and started my own practice. And then that led me to getting really interested about Buddhism and meditation. And so Um, At 19, I actually read The Art of Happiness by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And I just thought whatever this human is drinking, whatever (laughs) is in his field, I want to follow that. That feels right for me. And so I didn't have a teacher. There was no community. I just started a practice. And that has been a big part of my path as I get interested in something usually. And I just, you know, look for lots of information, lots of books. I absorb, I digest, I create my own practice. I, you know, figure out the recipe that works for me. And then in my desire to be in service of others, I share what I've learned from my own practice. Mm. And so 
that has had some really incredible results in my lifetime and, you know, has led to so many of the opportunities that I have now. Yeah, you have quite a vibrant practice. It's really amazing to see all that you've done in such a short time. I want to talk about the main theme in your book to me is conscious leadership. What do you mean when you say conscious leadership? I think what I mean about conscious leadership is, you know, like we've all had, I hope we've all had, you know, some person in our life that maybe was like a really great leader or mentor or manager. And that person usually has had some qualities that were really influential and supported us to shine, so to speak. Some of us have had people in our lives, managers or leaders or other people in power that have also really created very negative and ineffective experience, maybe even traumatic experiences for us in our lifetime at work. And when I look at the complexity that we're facing as a humanity with climate change, with the social justice issues it really is requiring a different operating system, a way of training the mind, the heart, and the body so that we can have the resilience, the love, the vulnerability and authenticity to really show up in these much higher states of consciousness, but also like grounded in our body to be able to navigate what's coming and what we are currently going through. One of the things I'd like to explore in more depth is this whole thing about the inner game, because most leaders are looking to develop the skills. How, what can I learn? What can I do? How can I get control? What are the tools and are missing the vastness of the interior game? You talked in your book, Shine, about the six elements of building a strong inner game, which you just mentioned quickly, but I'd just like to go through them a little more in depth of this whole shift from focusing on the outer world to shifting the focus to our inner world, our interiority. Mm -hmm. So I've been working as a consultant and coach for the last decade or so, and I've worked with lots of different teams and managers and senior leaders, and then my students at Stanford and Haas Business School. And I, I found kind of these six traits or qualities that certain leaders have that really enable them to embody this conscious, inclusive way of leading at work and in the world. And so those six are self-awareness. You know, self-awareness is really the ability to see our thoughts, notice our feelings, be in touch with our physical sensations, And have that awareness to know when to respond, how to respond. And I think if we don't have awareness, then we can't change what we don't see. And so that's usually the first one. And emotional intelligence is so important as far as our way of relating with each other and with ourselves. And that really encompasses self-management, self-awareness, other awareness, and then relationship mastery. So empathy is included in the inner game of emotional intelligence, because I feel like it's been a quality that's been lacking a lot in our culture and in our world. Like how 
can I really relate to this other person as me, you know, versus the other or doing the, you know, dehumanization. The next quality, number three, so to speak, is resilience. We all are already resilient, but as we're learning with the pandemic and all of the changes that are always present, but even more so, the volatility, the uncertainty, the ambiguity, we need to deepen our inner game of resilience. And then there's love. And I talk about love because I think it's one of the biggest and most important energies we can bring to each other, but to the world. And when you really think about love, you know, anything we're putting our attention and our presence and our commitment on only gets better if there's love. It's the opposite of fear. And that I feel like is the way that we need to continue to lead to get to where we want to go. And then there's well-being, you know, there's a huge level of burnout in our workplace and in our world. There's even more since the pandemic. I just read this article by Harvard Business Review, like saying that 90% of people are feeling burned out at this point, which feels very sad to me. But that's because we're not prioritizing our well-being. So, you know, I'm sure we've all heard this metaphor, but you have to put the oxygen mask on your self first before you can really be in service to everyone else. And I feel like being a conscious and inclusive leader is continually taking care of our own well-being and then also making sure that everyone around us, you know, has clean air, clean water, clean soil. They're getting enough rest. They have shelter. They have the things to thrive. And then lastly is authenticity. And that's really our ability to share our truth and share vulnerably so that we can lead from that place so that it invites all people to share their lived experiences, their identities, their, their wounds, their light, their strengths, their weakness. And that creates more safety and trust. And with safety and trust, we're able to collaborate, we're able to innovate, we're able to come together to solve these large problems in our world right now. How things have changed now that you can actually talk about love and authenticity in, in the workplace. It was when I started, not, not a conversation that we we're having for the most part. There's still some skepticism. I, I often oh, yeah. will get pushed back when I use the word love and people will say, or some clients will say, can we say compassion? I'm like, okay, yeah. well, compassion is part of the quality of love. If that's, if that's how people are going to be able to meet me in love, then let's do it. I want to get back to some of those in more detail. But one of the things that I notice people are spending a lot of energy on is looking for meaning and purpose. But they're constantly not only looking outward, outside themselves, but at outer manifestation of that and outer in time. In other words, I, as soon as I find my meaning or purpose, then I'll get, you know, I'll be on the right track. So it's never here. It's always something outside of us. So I'd love to hear your thoughts around the idea of these things that you're talking about, how they help to cultivate meaning and purpose in our lives because you're very purpose-driven, which is why I really wanted to have you on my show. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, there's, 
So there's a lot of practices that I have developed, again, from my own practice and then working with lots and lots of managers and leaders in the last decade to really fine tune what I notice really works. And going back to love, right? I think love is an essential ingredient to understanding our purpose. And so one exercise that I've led people through many, many times is to have people just kind of go inside, get quiet, and then ask them, what do you love? What do you love? What do you love? What do you love? And let all the things come up. What do you love so much that you're willing to fight and protect? And there's lots of things that people might say, family, planet, but they're usually related to each other and our ecosystem. And so at the end of the day, when we think about business and we think about like what we're here to do and be, it's about being in service to each other mm. and our greatest you know, capacity to heal and regenerate and flourish as, as individuals, as companies, as a planet. I just think that's the most important thing. So when you tap into what you really love, you get aligned with what really matters to you. Hmm. And because so many of us are so much alike, even though sometimes we forget that, we all typically have very similar wants and needs. If we can start to really take away the greed and the things that we've been told are going to make us happy, which I think many of us are learning through this pandemic and this quarantine, which is this deeper, you know, silent meditation retreat, so to speak, that we don't need that much to be happy. And the, you know, the things that actually create happiness, it's, it's usually an inside job. It's, mm -hmm. it's that inner work. It's those qualities that I'm speaking of that actually support greater happiness, contentment, awe, joy, inspiration. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the challenges that leaders are facing today and how the inner game can help them to meet those challenges. There, we're at such a unique time. There are major challenges, all these different things that are facing leaders today and the relationship to how our businesses are impacting climate change and the earth and our habitat. So maybe talk a little bit about the challenges and how you're working with organizations to shift the focus to that from being simply profit-oriented, so they're people and planet-oriented, as you've been saying, and many people have. You know, kind of what you were sharing earlier in the beginning of your OD career, where you really noticed that working with businesses and supporting them to be more conscious was the contribution that you could make in your lifetime to have, I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe the most positive influence. Does that feel right? Those are my words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've had the same calling. And so as I share in the book, you know, from a very young age, I have felt a very strong connection to Gaia, to Earth. And I was saving sea turtles, in fact, like on the shores of, uh, of Fort Lauderdale Beach when I was when I was 
you know, not even out of high school because I saw that they were going in the opposite direction of the beach. They were, they were going towards the boardwalk because there was, you know, these huge street lamps and they're, they're drawn to the ocean because of the reflection of the moon on the water. And they were going in the wrong direction. And by the time the sun would come out, they'd probably be eaten by birds. I recall myself picking up like 20 baby sea turtles that I saw on the beach that had just hatched and getting them to go into the water, just like shepherding them. And that's just been innate in me. And so when I started to think about how can I have the most positive influence in my lifetime, it was to work with companies and leaders. And Michael, I'll share, I've been a little covert about that as my main motivation until this book. It started coming out more and more, the climate change connection, and really then seeking out businesses that were aligned in that. But initially, you know, when I'm brought in to work with a team or a company, it's usually to create positive change. It's usually because senior leadership isn't getting along. There's a lack of trust. There's a lack of inclusion. There's a lack of safety. And then they're not performing well. They're not creating their quota. And so I think of myself as kind of a Trojan horse in some ways. I'm invited in. And after time that I create a foundation of greater consciousness, I can start to point you know, this is not sustainable, what you're doing, whether it's the ecosystem you're creating and the culture people are, are feeling burned out, or it's the way that your cafeteria, for example, is using vending machines full of plastic bottles. Is that really what you want to be nourishing your employees with? Is that really what you want to be putting back out into the world? I feel like with this book, I'm, I'm owning it so to speak, more and more, that if you work with me, we're probably going to have these discussions. And I really want to support you to think about social justice, climate change, as part of the business imperative and part of your business operations. And so one of the ways that I think is the most accessible for companies is to start to learn about the sustainable development goals, which I talk about in the book, but then also to get an assessment of where they are with their ethical and environmental governance. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to take the B impact assessment. It's free. Um, you can figure out where your score is and then what you need to improve on. And this is part of the B Corp, which is being best for the world, so to speak, as a business. There are thousands of companies and even multinational companies that have identified they want to be best for the world. They, they really want to commit to these standards to be ethical as a company that is, you know, really giving back in positive ways to the world. So inspiring. You know, we don't hear about this in the everyday news and media. I was just thinking about, you were talking about, we have 70,000 thoughts a day. And I wanted to add to that when I was reading it. Yes. And 70, 80 to 80% of those are negative thoughts. Also, one of the reasons for this show is to show people how many amazing things are happening in the world and, and what's possible. Can I, I add mean, to that? Statement? Yeah, please, really, please. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm a neuroscience nerd uh, and have, have had 
the privilege and the opportunity to work with lots of researchers on research, really looking at the long-term benefits of, of meditation. And yes, that's the science. On average, we have about 70,000 thoughts a day. Sometimes I feel like I have 90,000. <laughs> Me too. And yeah. And research has found that 70, 80% of our thoughts tend to be negative. It's called the negativity bias. Right. But what I would say, because that can feel really depressing to hear, right? I'm always looking for the negative. Well, that's our baseline. But if we start with a practice of meditation or some other awareness practice, and we get to know our minds, we get to see these thoughts that are conscious or unconscious, we can start to shift them. And so I've had a loving kindness practice for, gosh, almost 20 years now. And unconsciously, I wake up every morning and I practice loving kindness. Like it's one of the first things that happens when I wake up because I've just trained myself, which could be, may I be healthy and well? May I love myself well? Like, may I um, share my love well? You know, there's, there's all these things I say to myself that I've been repeating over time. And that actually creates a neural groove because what we found about the brain is that it's malleable. This is why the term neuroplasticity is here. Our brains are plastic. So we're always able to grow greater levels of consciousness, developed patterns of the mind that actually support us to lead with more love and have more empathy. And so even though that's our baseline, we can change it, we can shift it. And we're doing it all the time. And we just have to be really careful about the thoughts that we're feeding. I like to use foodisms. You know, um, what, what thought am I feeding? And if that one doesn't taste good, that one's going to have a negative reaction because it, it does. Every thought typically impacts our behavior. If I came into this conversation, I was like, another podcast interview. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. That would totally show up in my behavior and my energy. But no, I'm like, oh my goodness, what an opportunity. I get to talk to Michael and so excited. How do I get to, you know, show up and serve in the best of ways? So that's a whole different energy. That's a whole different thought. Anyway, I just that. wanted to add to that. No, it's beautiful. I love that. One of the benefits, of course, I know you know, is that as we meditate, that gap between getting triggered, the stimulus and the response or reaction, it has a sense of seeming bigger or longer that we have this point where as we have a meditation practice, we'll get triggered. But number one, I never stay triggered very long. It's usually very like just a passing thing. But number two, there's this place in there where we can choose to either react or respond. And I love the practice that you have in your morning practice, because, you know, I think there's either love or a longing or a calling for love, but that often shows up as something very negative, that calling. What are we going to choose? And meditation helps us to keep from being triggered because mostly we have our past filed. It's not even our real past. I don't think it's our remembered past filed in our imagined future. And so our actions are based on that as opposed to being able to presence ourselves, bring ourselves into a state of presence where we can make a choice each time to either go with that negative thought or create something entirely different. So I think that's really an important aspect of the meditative practice. Well, yeah, and you're speaking to the narratives or the stories that we've been repeating 
so much consciously or unconsciously that we then believe is true. Because if we say something to ourselves enough times, we think it's true. But because 70% of our thoughts are negative, then 70% of our thoughts are not true. <laughs> so we have to keep checking, is this really true? Yeah. Is this really true, the story I have about this person? Or um, I've had a guide and a teacher that has often encouraged me, well, this happened in the past, right? This negative interaction, this trauma, this wounding. And that's not what's happening right now, right? So like that was in the past, this is now. So how do I want to show up right now? Some people would say that it's all happening right now, but there's frozen past. There's unintegrated past that is affecting our future. And that both that and as Otto Scharmer talks about the emergent future, that all of it's happening in the present, but what can we access? And why I always say the remembered past is because if you went to your siblings and you said, remember that time that this happened? And they go, that isn't how that happened. It happened this way. So we know it's the remembered past. It's not even the real past. It's, mm -hmm. it's like in, in trauma, lots of people are, are, you know, we live in a sea of trauma. You know, I work with, with Thomas Hubel's work. And that whole idea of trauma being an invisible part of us, a frozen part of us that when we get reactivated, it's an opportunity. It's initially where our nervous system shut something down that was not positive, that was negative from the past to protect us. So from a whole systems perspective, which I know you're very committed to seeing things in systems from a whole mm -hmm. systems perspective, the past and the future are happening right now, but some of it, it hasn't been integrated, that it's frozen and it takes a lot of energy to keep that suppressed, which is why these neural pathways that you talk about have been deeply driven into our psyche and that without the space of meditation or contemplation or prayer or some way to expand our awareness both interior awareness and exterior awareness. So your thoughts about that in terms of this healing, you know, you say you're in the healing business and, and you're also in the business of healing businesses. Talk a little bit about that, how that works mm -hmm. in an organization. Thank you. That was so beautiful. Yeah. I really love that you brought that connection in. And as we were talking before the recording, you know, I've also been studying with Thomas Hubel and and his work on healing collective trauma, because it's, it's so important on how do we come together, you know, and really create a workplace in a world that works for everyone and is living in greater harmony with the planet. And so I think of myself as a healer for leaders, for business, and for the planet, because uh, they're all connected. So when we were going back to the beginning of what's a conscious leader, what's an unconscious leader, an unconscious leader is someone that does not have this elevated operating system of mind, body, and heart for whatever reason, mm -hmm. you know, they had trauma. Um, likely we all have trauma, right? And they don't have the tools. They don't have the skills. And so if they're showing up with scarcity mindset and fear and bullying, that creates a toxic environment in the culture where people don't feel safe, where there's no trust, where there's gossip, where there's all this other reactive behavior that's happening 
because they don't feel safe. And when we don't feel safe, we're triggered. We're reactive. We're not thinking about the bigger picture. We're not often leading from love or compassion or empathy. We're trying to figure out how do I defend or how do I fight? And so if we can bring awareness to the fear that is driving that behavior on the individual leader, let's say in this circumstance, and help that leader shift the mindset, shift the remembered past, perhaps, and show up differently and have a lot of compassion and forgiveness for themselves, right? That they're, they're acting like this and want to repair and change, then the culture of the workplace shifts and the mission of the workplace shifts, which hopefully will prioritize people and planet. You know what, we realize this product we've been putting out, yeah, it's making us a lot of money, but it's, it's making the world sick. There's no regeneration in this. Mm-hmm. It's depleting our resources. You know, when I think of Monsanto, that's a perfect example of probably some unconscious leadership and therefore a very toxic product that is hurting our planet and all of us. Yes, I just called them out. So there needs to be some deeper inquiry. Why are we in business? Yeah. And how am I leading? To come back to the individual and Mm -hmm. the inner game I, I studied for 40 years with Gabrielle Roth. I don't know if you know who that is. Of course, was. I love five rhythms. I'm, I've been a five <laughs> rhythms teacher for, I, I'm probably the first person to ever bring five rhythms into organizations, which was an interesting sell. <laughs> much I love easier, it. Much easier in Europe than it was in the US. But anyway, Gabrielle used to talk about we're schizophrenic instead of schizophrenic, we're schizophrenic, that our mind is doing one thing, our body is doing another, and our emotions are doing another thing. So we have no innate congruence when we're not in alignment with those areas. So those are three areas that you speak to in the book, and I'd like to talk about them. And I'd like to start with the body, because mm-hmm. that is the container uh, that, that everything gets put into. Mm-hmm. And my experience, I used to say in the corporate world that I work with heads on sticks, the only reason they have bodies is to take their head to the next meeting. And I still see that in the world that so many people are disembodied mm-hmm. and have no clue that they're disembodied. So how then can we actually feel or attend to the other things if we aren't in our body? And how does this work help us to re-embody ourselves? Beautiful. Thank you. Well, in this inner game upgrade, (laughs) I speak a lot about coming back to the body. And I talk a lot about how all of our emotions are living in our bodies. And I'm not the first person to say that. There's real scientific evidence based for that. Um, I'm a feeler. I have a lot of empathy. I feel a lot. But there were times in my life because I felt so much and it wasn't safe to feel Mm -hmm. that I shut that all down. There were definitely um, moments where I was dissociating, where I was stuffing. And so for me, it's really been a big journey of acknowledging and honoring how much I feel and how sensitive I can be 
and seeing that as one of my gifts and learning how to show that gift to others and that it's okay to feel and to really give permission to feel. Mm -hmm. And so every feeling has wisdom behind it. It's telling us there's a need here. And when we push it away or we just ignore it, it doesn't go away. It just hangs out and it actually gets stronger, which is why we can erupt and we can get triggered so quickly because we're not honoring those feelings and needs. And so just doing an awareness exercise of noticing, okay, what am I, what am I feeling in my body right now? Like what has the most sensation right now? And if that body part were to talk to me, like what would it want to say? What's the quality of the energy? Is it tense? Is it agitated? Is it peaceful? Is it spacious? Like there's so many things to pay attention to, to let us know what's actually happening. As we were talking about before, because the mind has so many untruths, I trust my body and my heart so much more than my mind. And so that's what I try to invite the people that I work with. Let's listen to the body. Let's presence what's happening right now. When we do the check-ins with teams, I say, what's the weather report right now? And I'm not the first person to do that. It's like, as I, it's really funny before the whole pandemic, because I've been writing my book now for three and a half years, I have this practice called zooming in, zooming out, <laughs> which is very funny. But the zooming in is like, what's happening right now? What's, what's the current state? What's the present state? So people will reflect on, I'm feeling this, or these are the sensations I'm aware of, you know, and there's, there's a witnessing that happens. And it just brings everybody into coherence of this present moment. And then based on me hearing that this person is really struggling, or they're sad, or they're low energy, or they're high energy, I can then respond in the best way to that team, to that individual of how to move forward. It's brilliant. I have a distinction that I use that not everyone would agree with, but the difference between feelings and emotions. And I have classified them that way because feelings off it's of the mind, my anger of the mind. I send it my fear of the mind is very different than what I call it as an emotion. That's not that feelings don't often elicit motion, but so often that the feelings are really in the head and the emotions are in the body. And that distinction, I think, is really important because many of us can't feel our feelings. I am amazed at how many people I work with, and I was like that myself, could not feel. People who have been through trauma can't mm -hmm. feel. And that's not a bad thing, as Thomas would say and other people would say. That being numb, that place there is the information that you've got. So you may be feeling with the mind anger, but not really experiencing it in the body and where it resides in the body. And I think that's an important distinction to actually recognize how much we're not in touch again with our emotions. So we're very all of us are somewhat disembodied, somewhat disemotioned. The head has really done a coup over the heart mm -hmm. in a way, the, the, not just the physical heart. I'm talking about the spiritual heart that is in here that allows us to experience the embodied emotions that are going on. And then on top of that, 
to be able to, to be with someone else and feel that without getting the empath overload that you were talking about. Like it's just gets too much because you can't discern mine from yours, but there's a kind of regulation. All of that being said to bring up the whole area of safety, because that without a safe container, we're not going to be able to do this, this work with people. I'd love to hear how you create safety. I love your little check-in. What's the weather check? That actually is one way that you can create safety. What are some of the other ways that you create safety in relationships, both groups and with individuals? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, just, I'm loving this conversation. Um, <laughs> I'm just loving all the pieces that you're bringing in and I'm really appreciating your knowledge on all of these subjects. So I just wanted to share. Mm. There's a lot of um, sensation of appreciation and happiness and joy as we're talking right now. So thank you just to presence that. I mean, we could just go through all the points of your book, which is a brilliant book, but I'd like to like, you know, bring in something that maybe made us both look. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that you talked about the distinction right there of feelings, which yes, when we're, when we're asked to identify a feeling, we go into the mind, right? I'm feeling rage. I'm feeling happiness and feeling joy, but then what does it actually feel like in the body? And so, you know, you're right. A lot of us are disembodied and there's still times when I'm like, oh, I wasn't in my body right then. I was totally up here, you know, and and that's part of being human. And so it's like, how do I drop back into the body? How do I, how do I check in there? And so going back to safety, so I've been working with Amy Edmondson's team, the Fearless Organization, and I was a fan of her work for a very long time before that. And so whenever I go into any work with a team, and I'm usually always brought in by senior leadership, and I'll be asked to work with a team or I'll be asked to create a curriculum, for example, for the whole company. So one of my clients right now is Cliff Barr who I absolutely love. They're a very mission-driven organization, very committed to people and planet. All of their products are sustainable and organic, and they have a huge system that they go through to make sure that that continues. I was invited to actually support them in creating the communication curriculum that every Cliff Bar employee has the opportunity to, to take. Which is, which is the way they want to be saying, this is how we communicate at Cliff Bar, mm-hmm. which is really checking our bias and has inclusive language. And there's a huge component on navigating triggers, which is in chapter two of my book, because it's a huge part of how we're successful with each other in our relating and relationships. And before I do any training, I create guidelines for psychological safety within the training. And we're doing this in this training. I just had the first training of this year of this curriculum on Thursday with my colleague at Cliff Bar. And so I talked to them about the benefit and the science of psychological safety first. And then I share examples of this is how we can create safety. And I usually have like nine statements that I read out, which could be, I check my bias. I seek positive intent. I invite all perspectives, all lived experiences, all identities into this room. I keep the confidentiality of the room. There's variations of these. And then I ask groups and teams, 
what are the top three that would help you feel most safe to really show up, to really share yourself in this training, especially because we're learning and growing around communication skills, which can be messy, right? Like we don't like conflict because it often will create a sense of, of a lack of safety. So if this training is to be practicing this, we want to feel like we're safe so that we can be successful, even in this container, which the motivation is to be safe. So we can learn and grow to be more effective communicators. So then hearing from them, and if, and if one of those nine that I've created or that I've taken from past groups doesn't work for them, then tell me what is actually going to help you feel safe to show up. And then we get agreement from everyone in the training. I ask them to write yes in the chat box or I ask them to raise their hand. And then again, like just make sure it's explicit. If this doesn't feel safe, please speak up. Beautiful. I think another thing while we're on emotions too, to get just another piece, people think that there's the bad emotions and there's the good emotions. And I've found that there's no bad emotions, that every emotion is a teacher. Fear teaches us to be alert. Anger teaches us to set boundaries and be clear about our communication. Every one of these that we call a negative is not to get rid of, but to actually explore of what is the gift of this emotion? And you address that in your book. Anything else you want to say to add on to that? Yeah, I, I feel like... Before the pandemic, and this is, I mean, there's been so many gifts of the pandemic and our quarantine, it's enabled us to have to feel as a collective, I think more deeply than we ever have, because there's been a lot of time to be. I mean, we're all still navigating this, but there's been less of this outward momentum because of we can't be in these socialized events and gatherings as we were. So it's been definitely a turning towards. And there's been a lot of suffering in this time of things that most people have never had to engage or deal with. And so because I already had a lot of these tools and skills, when 2020 rolled around, I was like, I've been through shit like this. Excuse my French. <laughs> um, how can I be in service? And not to say that I wasn't navigating my own difficulties and challenges because we all have been, but what I've learned through hitting some very, very difficult times in my life, 2019, I'll just be honest, was the worst, most difficult year of my life. There was, it was just such a leveling for me that I had to go even deeper into these practices that I've been writing about. And what I learned for myself was I wasn't really in touch with my rage. Mm. There, there were certain things that happened personally and professionally that I needed to embody rage. And I so appreciate this emotion. And I had a lot of it that I needed to get out. So I, um, I was a kickboxing instructor in college <laughs> and I got back into kickboxing and I would just whack the heck out of this bag. I needed to get it out. I swam in cold lakes and alpine lakes in the summer of 2019 just to kind of like move it. And so the gift of really meeting grief, deep levels of fear, deep levels of rage, 
is that when you meet those places again and again and again, which was the gift that I had in 2019, just hitting rock bottom many times, the other side of that is joy. The other side of that is inspiration. How do I want to show up? You go through a portal, so to speak. Like it was very much a dark night of the soul for me. And I just thought, when am I going to get out of this darkness? But that's not the way. (laughs) <laughs> the, like, you know, the, the impatience of when's it going to be over? Because then you're not letting yourself feel it. Yeah. And, you know, it can be hard to feel all this stuff by yourself, for sure. So this mm-hmm. is where having a really great healer in your life, giving you tools, having a therapist, having someone who can hold your hand and say, Carly, or whoever, Let's go here together. And I had one of those people and she's still in my life. I'm super grateful for her. Mm, I'm glad you have that. That's important. We, yeah, we have we, to reach out for that. Uh, we do. And it's really, we think we can self-regulate this, but there are times when it's too much and that we can't. And that path that you take often that you specifically spoke to, I find that when I work with someone or myself, that anger and rage before you pop out that other side, often underneath is a river of sadness that you need to deal with mm-hmm. underneath that. Mm-hmm. And I find that's very common to find that when we're doing that kind of work. People talk about, I'm stressed. There's so much stress. And I want to relate this to meditation a little bit. I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I have anxiety. And when you say I'm stressed, it really doesn't say anything. It's like saying I'm sick. Well, do you have a cold or stage four cancer? You know, it's, it doesn't say anything. So for me, when we talk about stress, which becomes sometimes a label to not have to be responsible for something. But when we talk about mm-hmm. stress, we're saying that my current capacity is insufficient to meet the challenges that are before me. So it's an issue of capacity. So what is capacity? Capacity is space, our ability to be spacious instead of cramped. That everything feels like it's just like I drank super glue or something. It's just all stuck together. Mm -hmm. So this idea of space then takes us to meditation. So meditation creates more space in us. But people think this is important, I think, in organizations that Oh, I'm going to meditate and everything's going to be mellow and I'm going to be ohm and, you know, I'll get a unicorn to ride on or whatever, all this stuff. And no, when you make more space, those frozen parts of you start to come up to be seen and dealt with. So Mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And it's a, I just led a two day deep dive meditation retreat last weekend And this was a big thing when people who've been meditating with me for a long time are saying, oh, it was so good before I want to get back. No, there's no getting back to some other place. You've actually created space to honor that, that something else is coming up to lean into, to touch, to feel, to experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering how you bring that in when you're doing organizational meditation, how you deal with that. Beautiful question. I think it's just presencing that in the, in the guiding of these practices. So yes, when, when we get quiet, so to speak, we come inside, we're going to feel mm-hmm. that's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think just making that explicit, if you're feeling, if your eyes are watering, if there's more sensation than what you're used to, this is all normal. This is actually means that you're doing it right, right? Because we're always like, am I doing it wrong? My mind is just constantly going. I, I can't meditate. That's what I hear all the time. Me too. No, that's actually what the mind does <laughs> because we have 70,000 thoughts a day. Your mind is never going to be quiet ever, ever. <laughs> but with this practice of meditation, we can notice the thoughts. We can actually create more awareness and just stay present to breath, to body, to sound, to bringing our attention just to loving kindness. And we can start to train our mind to be here, but we're never gonna have an empty mind. Again, you were sharing before, like it gives space between the stimulus and the response. And that I think is one of the greatest benefits. And there's so much research, right? Like meditation supports lower incidences and feelings of depression, of anxiety. I mean, it goes on and on. It supports weight loss. It supports our immune system. Um, I used to work with cancer patients. It supports us to actually effectively fight cancer diagnosis because we're in greater levels of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest. But how do I introduce this is really just naming what is likely going to happen. And I'll, I'll just kind of piggyback on with a story. So I, I myself have done many, many years of silent meditation practice. I lived in the Bay Area for 14 years. And I was very strongly associated with Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And it was really the rock for me to stay there as long as I did, because for anyone that's lived in the Bay Area, there's a lot of hustle. There's a lot of striving. Silicon Valley pressure is very apparent everywhere there. And it wasn't actually in flow with my natural rhythm of slowness, of presence. And so every four to six months, I was exhausted. I had to go in. So I'd go for a week. I'd go for 10 days to replenish, to come back to my greater motivation for why I was doing this work. It's, it's my dharma. But I was just interacting with a friend that I don't know very well, who is in her late 50s. And she was going into her first 10-day silent retreat in Mexico. And she was interacting with me every single day via her phone and, you know, texting. And she was telling me within the first day that all this stuff was coming up. And she had all this feeling around her mother who had passed and, you know, a lot of shame and guilt that she had to put her in a home. And, and I said to this friend, this is normal. And I really want to encourage you to stop texting me and to get off your computer. And I was really surprised that this retreat center hadn't made that a condition mm-hmm. because she wasn't getting any benefit. And what I kept noticing with her is she would go in, a lot of feelings would come up and then she'd come out and there was a lot of reactivity and a lot of neuroses and a lot of anxiety. But the more that we can go in, go in, go in, go in. Again, the other side of that is, is peace, is balance, is joy. The levels just start to lessen 
over time, but, but we have to have the courage to stay. Yes. And it's dangerous. The other sideness thing. <laughs> and I just want to name it because I think it's really important because so many people are trying to get somewhere like mm-hmm. I'm going to do this to get to this place. And yes, you may get to that place, but it often is a distraction. Like, when am I going to awaken? When am I going to get, you know, when am I going to be calm? When is this going to happen? So there's this kind of built in bias. I call it the in order to bias. We're doing this in order to transcend it and get to another place that may or may not happen. But I think it's a trap that that part that people often fall into. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just taking a moment to pause. Yeah, good. We like pauses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think for me, I'll, I'll just speak from my own experience, then I can share, you know, what I what I might invite others is. Yeah, it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. You hear that so much in life. And from my own experience of having a meditation practice for as long as I have, I'm not perfect. I have my flaws. I'm not always like this responsive, conscious human. I'm just not. I'm messy. That's how it is. Um, but this practice has enabled me to show up again and again and again from more love, from less reactivity, from more wisdom, with more empathy. I don't have this goal of becoming enlightened. That feels really far off. <laughs> but do I want to be a better human? Do yeah. I want to serve in the best possible ways that I can in this lifetime? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And this is one of the pathways towards that for me. And I've seen it again and again and again. And so with that said, not just with my own experience, I've seen it with so many of my students. I mean, I've literally had people say to me after three weeks of taking a class with me, Carly, this course has changed my life. And it's it's not just meditation. You know, I, I teach a lot, but meditation is the foundation because it is the easiest way to create more self-awareness and we cannot change what we can't see, what we can't feel, what we can't know. But I've had, you know, senior leaders say we have more compassion and empathy three weeks later than I've ever seen. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I'm totally, I mean, I call that coming home to our original goodness rather than original sin to our original goodness. Or our and wholeness. This, we could do a yeah. whole, our wholeness. We could do a whole show just on this and maybe we will. But I, I want to make sure we talk about how to be a conscious and inclusive leader at work and in the world. You have an Beautiful. upcoming event on the 25th. Tell us about that. Tell us how we can get more information and what's going to happen there. Thank you, Michael. Hmm. My book debuts on the 23rd of February, which I feel very excited by. And as a result of the book coming out, I really wanted to give people an experience with other leaders that I've gotten to know that I feel like are really embodying this conscious and inclusive way of leading. So I have gathered some of my favorite humans and we are putting together four different events, four different panels. that will be one a month. 
So the first one is February 25th, like you said, Michael. And this first one is how to be a conscious and inclusive leader. And Cheryl O'Loughlin is one of the panelists. She's also one of the leaders in my book. She used to be the CEO of Cliff Bar, and she has a huge commitment to social justice and climate change. And she'll be sharing more about her journey, what she's cultivated in herself to be a conscious and inclusive leader, and the calls to action that she is mm. um, really manifesting in her life. Ryan Honeyman has been very much a part of the the B Corp emergence, and he'll have a lot to share on that. Nika White has been a DEI consultant for many years, and she really comes from the lens of bringing more diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, why that's so important, why business really can't be a force for good without that. And then in March, there's another panel with some of my favorite humans that are men and talking about the really important role of men being allies right now to create a workplace in a world that works for everyone. Then there is another panel in April on women and the future of work and how women are being allies and how we're actually supporting each other to rise and to lead because it's been found by so much research that we need to have more women on board. Women tend to be more effective leaders because we look at the bigger picture we're more connected to the community and to empathy and have higher levels of emotional intelligence. And then lastly, it's how to be a climate optimist because many of us feel overwhelmed by what's happening with the climate and we're not feeling the degree of feelings that come up around this huge problem we're facing. So how do we move through and out the feelings to really act responsibly because we all have a part to play in this. Brilliant. And you also have a podcast that people can go to on carlyhauk.com. That's C-A-R-L-E-Y-H-A-U-C-K.com. And I just want to say, Carly, how deeply honored I am to be with you, to be able to feel and experience your vision for a world that works for everyone and how you've been tirelessly manifesting that in your work in organizations and with people at work. So thank you for taking the time to be on We Earth Radio. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. It was a delight. Yeah. Blessings. <laughs> We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.